Hello and welcome to the Leap of Faith. In a week when, at his formal installation, Archbishop Dermot Farrell suggested more and more lay people will have to take responsibility in terms of the leadership that's provided at parish level. The Archbishop also suggested that it's inevitable that the Dublin Diocese and priests won't be able to celebrate Sunday Mass in every church in every parish. Last Friday, the Dying with Dignity Bill 2020 moved to committee stage and submissions were invited from interested parties. The bill was introduced by Solidarity People Before Profit TD Gino Kenny and supported by Tom Curran and cervical check campaigner Vicky Phelan. This bill is about giving people who are at the end of their life in pain the choice to, to go gently before that happens. There are situations in relation to some illnesses that it's a very, very painful ending. And in them circumstances, uh, somebody should have a choice to end on their terms. We are very proud of the fact that our people are free to make choices about the way they live. The unfortunate thing is that we haven't extended that freedom to the way people end their life. In 2013, Tom Curran's partner of 25 years, Mary Fleming, took a landmark case to Ireland's High Court and later to the Constitutional Supreme Court. Both courts dismissed Mary's case. However, the legal action put voluntary euthanasia and assisted suicide on the political map here. Among those submitting their views to the Doyle Committee are the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. Professor Max Watson is a palliative care consultant in Ireland and the UK. He's the author of the Oxford Handbook of Palliative Care. More recently, he was part of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland's panel, which drafted its submission to the Oireachtas Committee. Professor Watson joins me from his home this evening. Welcome to The Leap of Faith. In your submission, you described the bill as flawed. Well, I think rather than beginning with the the flaws in the bill, I would like to begin with saying what we like. We really love dignity in dying, and that should be available to everybody across Ireland. That is what has brought me into palliative medicine. That's what I do day and daily. It's what I'm passionate about. So uh, that's what I want to see. And, And I'm sure the author of the bill he also is very passionate about improving dignity in dying. But how we achieve that, I think that's where we differ. And I don't think that to achieve dignity in dying in Ireland, there needs to be a change in the law. So my problems with this bill are several. I think it's been poorly drafted in terms of uh, such things as prognosis. For example, the, the Oregon bill says that you know prognosis needs to be six months before you would be eligible to be considered for, for physician-assisted suicide. We need to be very precise and very clear in such legislation to avoid it being abused. This bill focuses on the physical. So much of my work as a palliative care doctor isn't just with, with drugs. Dying isn't a medical event. Dying is a human event, a very important part of our lives. And it includes social, spiritual, physical. All those things can make dying dignified or mitigate against dignity. So the bill is very unidimensional. And then the issue that I guess people will all highlight on the safeguards issue. If I'm a 86 year old and I've got three grandchildren who are wanting to go to college Am I hanging around here a bit too long? If I sold the house, could they not get off to UCD? Wouldn't that be better? Where are the safeguards to prevent that from happening? When that argument is put forward, is there any evidence to suggest that people can actually be subject to pressure? What we know from Oregon is that over 60% of patients cite the fear of being a burden to others 
that can be a very powerful thing. And yet at the start of our life, we're not worried about being a burden. During the middle of our life, we take the burdens of the young and the old. Is it not part of our responsibility when we're living life to the full that sometimes we have to give up control? And, and that's part of life too. The other argument that's put forward is that we will hear stories of people who face a, a diagnosis which may result, for example, in loss of control and, and mean a very s- slow and what seems like an undignified demise. And I have looked after such patients and it is the suffering and hurt of individuals going through very difficult dying processes that have spawned bills like this. But we actually don't need to change the law in Ireland. The law as it stands, it combines a deterrent against those abuses that I was talking about, but also with discretion and gentle compassion for those sort of cases where they happen. So the law is nuanced already in recognizing that as a society, we recognize that people who commit suicide we have compassion for them, but we have much less compassion for those who assist in suicide. And we've got very no compassion for those websites which encourage teenagers to end their lives. So there's a spectrum here. And I'm just very concerned that this law and the bill is a very blunt instrument which is going to change Irish society at a fundamental level. And yet there is uh, what appear to be an element of compassion in the, in the desire of, of people putting forward this idea that they would be removing suffering. Absolutely. And we want to do the most compassionate thing, but it's not just about the patient in front of you. Because if you change the law, the law has an impact not just for that individual, but has an impact for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of others. I did obstetrics before I did palliative care. So I, I see the two as very similar. It's about getting a good delivery and it's not a medical, primarily a medical process. It's uh, the end of life. And I'm very much a, a midwife, if you like, of, of that human process. When you're teaching, when you're, you're bringing new doctors into the, the world of palliative medicine, what's often their, their biggest misunderstanding of the specialty? I I think they can perceive us as basically uh, the grim reaper. Whenever we arrive, people are about to die. We are the purveyors of morphine. We're the injectors of the last injection. We are the people who uh, kind of are doing euthanasia. (laughs) I think that's what they perceive us as, uh, or can perceive us as. I was looking at a study there just the other day of 11 million referrals to palliative care. And the the average length of of time before people refer to us is is only like six days. You know, that's the average length. We're very much the last resort. And yet there is one famous study out there which shows earlier referral to palliative care can actually even lengthen life by reducing suffering and reducing, uh, helping people to, to come to terms with where they are improving the quality of life. I have no illusions. We cannot solve all pain. We cannot solve all suffering, but we can do a lot. And until you make sure that there's good quality palliative care available right across Ireland, please don't introduce something which hasn't got an evidence base, which could be seen as a a cost-saving way of reducing the quality of care, of costly care to people. 
palliative care began in Ireland. Mary Aikenhead came from Cork. She saw the needs of vulnerable people and she was from a middle-class environment, but her, her drive, her compassion was ensuring that people who uh, were vulnerable and poor got access to good quality care. This is one of Ireland's greatest exports, compassion, care, support at a holistic level. With active euthanasia now legal in the Netherlands, Belgium, Colombia, Luxembourg, Western Australia, Spain and Canada, the argument being put forward by many people in those countries was that decision was made to give people a sense of autonomy, a sense of control over themselves. Absolutely. And those countries, I think if you've ever been to Holland, you will see autonomy is a big deal thing in, in Holland they, they, and, and very important. But is autonomy the ultimate arbiter of everything? I've worked in countries where when we've done studies on autonomy uh, at the end of life, uh, one study in China, uh, the, the participants said, why are you asking me about the, my choices at the end of life? I've never had a choice in my life up to now. Uh, why are you suddenly putting this on me now? Why would the people of the Netherlands be imposing their view on autonomy on the people in South Sudan? There's lots of different sorts of imperialism and we have to be careful of that. The Presbyterian Church in Ireland were just one of a number of, of groups that have actually submitted information to the Oireachtas Committee. What are you particularly concerned about as a group that might actually see the bill passed? I, I think two or three things. One, I think Ireland sees itself now as very much an, as an inclusive nation, a nation of many different parts. The Presbyterian Church is, is, is a part. And if... Uh, this leads to a sense of alienation that our views, our thoughts, our understandings isn't important. It would be an awful shame if Ireland returned to the, the state where minorities felt uh, that they just had to shut up and get on with it. Secondly, I think our, our, our concern is with the vulnerable. Our, 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 our worldview is that we should be allied not with the powerful, but with those who don't have a voice. So those people in care homes, those people who are struggling with illness, those people who are struggling with mental illness, alongside the Irish constitution, which says that the, the state has a responsibility to look after the vulnerable and takes that very seriously. This bill would require the constitution actually probably to be changed because it is a fundamental of, of the Irish way of doing things. For anyone listening to us this evening who still is unsure of what palliative care means at the end of life, how do you, how do you sum it up? Palliative care is the total care of an individual when they no longer have the possibility of, of cure in their disease. Palliative care can be provided in a general way by your district nurse or your GP or it may require more specialist input in terms of symptom control. And that might be physical symptoms such as pain or nausea or vomiting. It might be spiritual symptoms in terms of existential angst or fear about dying. It might be emotional support. It might be financial or social support. People can be very worried about what's going to happen to their firms or their families. And it's trying to help people address those issues so that they can do the work of dying as well as they can. I see my 
my role as traveling with people and to be with people, not to convert people, but my responsibility as someone who tries to follow the life of Christ is to try to help people in a way that they would want to be helped and to recognize the spirit who was within me, within other people. And finding God all over the place is what gives me hope in these difficult days and gives me confidence, but also reverence for the experience of individuals and the importance of life. Professor Max Watson, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith tonight. Thank you very much. A research study from Queen's University Belfast sheds light on how churches on the island of Ireland are navigating the COVID-19 pandemic. The research was done by Dr Gladys Ganiel. Dr Ganiel, welcome. What is of particular interest to you from your research? I think one of the most interesting and really impressive aspects of this has been how quickly churches have moved religious services online and how much that has appealed to people, really. Uh, The survey research I did indicated that this jumped from about 56% of parishes offering online provision before the pandemic to 87% by the middle of May. Clergy reported that far more numbers of people were accessing these services than would have ever entered their their church buildings. There was also uh, an emphasis put by many local faith communities on serving the wider public. Across the four largest Christian denominations, 74% of the faith communities either continued at their same level of service provision or actually increased it during the pandemic, which is quite impressive, I think, when you put in perspective that many churches' uh, donations in the offering plate have gone down. So they're doing this with even less resources than they would have had before the pandemic as well. I'm interested in in your role as a sociologist to be able to have have access to a great number of the clergy that you you, you talked to. What, What was the overall sense you had from them and how they're coping? It hasn't been easy for for clergy. You know, it's a stressful job, particularly in recent years in Ireland. Clergy, even before the pandemic, were coming under more pressure because of decline in vocations and being asked to do more and more with uh, less staff, if we can put it that way. So the pandemic kind of exacerbated that trend. And then on top of it, you've got... um, the restrictions that mean that a funeral cannot proceed in the normal way. The clergy cannot exercise their pastoral care functions in the normal way. So many clergy have felt even a sense of guilt, they told me, about not being able to, to comfort the grieving in the way that they would have liked. So I had one priest who said to me that conducting a funeral during COVID conditions was the most difficult thing he's ever had to do as a priest. So when you add that kind of extra stress and feeling guilty about not being able to do as they would like, Uh, on top of uh, priests and clergy's many other duties, it has been an exceptionally uh, stressful time. We know too that there has been a certain amount of pressure applied to get churches open again. One of the the things I found was that actually the process of reopening church buildings was one of the most stressful aspects of ministering um, during the pandemic. And a lot of this was due, I suppose, to the complexity of it. You know, um, it had to be managed in such a way that the public was kept safe. It required additional volunteers who clergy said were um, actually quite willing to come forward. They were amazed by (laughs) the people really who came forward to help volunteer for stewarding and ensure that social distancing took place. This whole time was just experienced as very stressful by clergy because of those public health worries. I remember one Presbyterian minister said to me, you know, some people wanted me to open earlier, some wanted to open later. You know, you couldn't please any, but everybody, you just had to make a decision on it. So 
Some felt that um, maybe they were a bit under pressure from people in their congregation or their parish to open sooner than they would have liked um, from a safety perspective. Now, your survey covered many faiths. Um, I'm curious about the idea that the, you were able to notice some form of increase in interfaith cooperation. When I say interfaith, we should probably qualify that to inter-Christian. So while the original survey did attempt to access people of non-Christian religions, it didn't come back in high enough numbers to make any claims with confidence. But what we found, um, particularly in interviews with clergy, was that at the national level, the interchurch contact has been more frequent and of better quality, perhaps, than I, I would even make the claim at any other time in Irish church history. Now, a lot of this has been driven by the specific circumstances of the pandemic. So for instance, the church leaders group, which includes the Church of Ireland and Catholic Archbishops of Armagh and the Presbyterian moderator and the, um, the Methodist president. Uh, this church leaders group at one point was meeting nearly every two weeks um, to discuss issues around um, responding to the pandemic and reopening buildings and so forth. So responding uh, to the pandemic as a crisis sort of brought the church leaders together. And at the same time, that increased contact at that at the national level was around issues like Brexit and dealing with the past in Northern Ireland. There was a response to British government proposals on that at one point, um, to the point where I would really make the claim that this is the most sustained and highest quality inter-church national level contact that we've probably had. Given the insight you have from the research, how would you brief church leaders as to what to expect next when, when hopefully the pandemic has gone? Well, I mean, I think people are going to expect now a certain level of online religion, if we can put it that way. People actually like that, we have found, and many churches and parishes have added like extra services, you know, evening prayers and this sort of thing. So I think people will expect um, to be able to practice their religion uh, on the internet a bit. So uh, going forward, they should expect a blended online and in-person approach um, to worship. And another thing I found was that the response to the pandemic has actually increased um, volunteering amongst lay people. So we found lay people were helping out with technical aspects about getting religion online, with the reopening of church buildings. And um, I think that's something that many clergy would welcome, this idea of a, a discipleship, a more active faith Christianity that goes outside the walls of the church building. The flip side of that may be some people dropping out entirely. So you might get a kind of smaller church with more intense um, involvement with blended um, online services. One of the things that my research found was that even clergy who were cocooning were continuing uh, to minister. So the, the original survey, 82% of faith leaders who were cocooning for age or health reasons continued virtual ministry. So in some ways, they sort of soldiered on a, a large percentage of them. I mean, I think the burden has has fallen on on all the clergy, um, really, and young and old um, clergy have them, you know, they've themselves have contracted COVID and, and so forth. So I don't know that I could, you know, support the generalization that the, the burden's fallen more on, on young clergy. I think uh, everyone has kind of have felt that burden and, you know, been really, I suppose, exceptional in responding to it and trying to, to continue ministering online to people. It's recognized, you know, what they do with funerals, um, what they would do as hospital chaplains, you know, and providing pastoral care. The title of one of my research reports was called People Still Need Us. And that was a, a quote that a priest wrote into the survey. 
And he said, you know, I think one of the things the pandemic has shown me is that people actually do still need us. We do have a, a social role uh, that we can play. Sure, it's different than what the Catholic Church was like, but we have an opportunity to serve, you know, and this is what we would like to, to do is actually to serve people and contribute to that common good. Dr. Gladys Daniel, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you. Finally this evening, Leaven is a bi-monthly digital magazine, mainly for and by young Catholics in Ireland. It's set to launch in April, and its editor is journalist Greg Daly. Greg, what's the inspiration you had that makes you think it's time to publish your own magazine? Our Catholic voices in Ireland are kind of stale in many ways. Even when people say good stuff and do good stuff and make good points, there's a tendency of people to switch off as though we've heard it before and we've heard it from the same people before. I thought it would be a good idea to try and pull together people who would be kind of, you know, kind, definitely kind, smart, informed and faithful young Catholics to try and put together something that might speak to people of their own age in particular. I, I kept meeting kind of clued in Catholics in their 20s and 30s whose voices weren't being heard. I thought, well, why not help them be heard? That was always that a key thing. There's a there's a line from Pope Benedict back in the day when he'd said that we need to be a creative minority. There's a real tendency to talk about us being a minority and to focus on what we've lost. And there's a real tendency to omit the fact that we're called to be creative. Every country, every society has its own issues and you've got to speak to those. And it, it falls to the people who live there to try and do that. How are you going to or are you going to address the idea that you could become a corner, an echo chamber with people saying what they want to say to each other. One of the things is that we're trying to have a good range of people. Another one is that we're focusing on kind of engagement rather than contradiction in a way. I think the range of material will be important as well. We'll be hoping to interview people and very much different sorts of people with different kind of outlooks on Christianity or what Christianity has to offer, what Catholicism has to offer. So that's, that's key to it. But also our subject matter, you know, in terms of the articles that we'll be writing, it's anything from science to economics to history to art criticism, you know, philosophy, whatever it might be, theology, all along the way. So by having a range of contributors, we hope we'll do what we can to kind of broaden it out. I had pictured kind of themed issues, an issue based on science, an issue based on economics and church social teaching, stuff like that. In my, my, my previous job, I was kind of tasked with putting together special issues built around themes, and they had done very well. They'd won the, the first prize for best kind of special issue in the world in the Catholic Press Awards in America. Will there be room for the dissenter? Uh, there'll be dissenting on different issues. I, I'd be pretty confident about that. And I've, I mean, I've reached out to people to help promote it, and the people would have very different stances on things. The bottom line is, look, it, it is meant to be kind of a faithfully Catholic thing. At the same time, there is room for movement there in different ways without getting kind of bogged down and stuff. The priority is trying to see on, on what does the church have to offer. I'm not saying he's a role model in any way that way, but you look at, for instance, in the States at the moment where you have um, President Biden who's just taken over there. There are lots of Catholics who have big issues with him on various issues, and they're not wrong to. But Pope Francis straight away welcomed this. He felt this was a step in a good direction and a recognition that Catholicism can drive really positive change. When President Biden talks about, about the environment, when he talks about racism and immigration and stuff like that, he is explicitly coming from a Catholic tradition about this. And he says so. There's a recognition there that we can and should be able to draw on our faith in this ways. So I think there's definitely scope for different shades of Catholicism, but the core of it is to try and have a solidly kind of faithful thing to give, give a voice 
to, to younger Catholics that way. I mean, one of the projects that one of the key elements of the project is that it should be seen as almost a hot housing exercise. There are smart, articulate, faithful, kind young Catholics out there. They're not being heard. You say they're not being heard, Greg, but what do they have to say? They have to say that, for instance, what can represent Catholicism, whether um, kind of established voices are not necessarily them. We, we had the opportunity a few years ago when Pope Francis became Pope and he did his, his first couple of major writings. Um, in particular, I mean, the obvious one is the environmental one, Laudato Si, which was a real attempt to show, to bring like a religious worldview to how we think about the environment and to recognize that as we behave here has impacts on other people around the world. And it really takes a toll. In other words, this is a basic act of goodness. We should be calling out, for instance, China. Uh, uh, in terms of his policies with the Uyghurs and, stuff. and that's 100% right and we will rightly say the government is compromising on its morals on this one you know it's essentially allowing or indulging bad things if you like for the sake of making money and that's exactly right but you take that a step further and you go well hang on a minute we're also willing to allow people in poorer countries around the world to be endangered by climate change in a really serious way and we're willing to allow it because we're not willing to make the changes we need to here, even if it costs us something. So it's a way of trying to join all this together. And I, I see that younger Catholics in particular are regularly aware of this, but the dots aren't necessarily being joined. And I think that's something that I'd like to do and that we'd like to do as a team to help this happen. The format is digital, not in print. It was inspired actually by a comics uh, criticism magazine online, a thing called Panel by Panel which comes out once a month, and it's, it's a wonderful, elegant, detailed kind of thing. And the model for selling it was good, and I th- it just looked like a good thing. But also it looked like something with pe- which people with basically no money could do. But now it goes further because, of course, um, COVID has wiped out distribution channels. You know, our traditional kind of church journalism in Ireland and Britain is largely sold through churches um, in like parish shops and so forth. There are dioceses in Ireland that have lost three quarters or more of their income. Now, if people aren't putting the money in the basket, what's the likelihood that they're putting the money into the parish shop? So it's got to be, and you know, you go into the likes of Eason's, or you could a few weeks ago, and the number of religious papers there has dropped significantly. PDFs are probably the way to go. I'm not opposed to the idea of doing a print version down the line if it works. I mean, obviously, we hope it will. To start with, definitely a PDF. So it is indeed a leap of faith for you. Very much so, very much so. We wish you and the team all the very best. Uh, Greg Daly, the editor of Leaven, coming out on the 1st of April. Thank you for joining us on the Leap of Faith. Thank you, Michael. And you can get more information on Leaven on their website, leavenmagazine.ie. And that's our Leap of Faith this week. From our producer, Brian Lally, broadcast coordinator, Jonathan Holland, and me, Michael Cummins. Good night.